I think we can all agree that things have not been going well for Arizona over the last two and a half decades since Mexico declared its independence. As we have covered ad nauseum, and you are probably as sick of hearing this as I am saying it, the Pimaria Alta was facing any number of challenges. There was simply no money to provide for adequate defense or even properly pay the soldiers, which was not great considering that the Apaches, Yaquis, and even Odom were raiding and revolting all over the place. The missions were pretty much abandoned after the Franciscans were forced to leave, and the instability in Mexico on a macro level was mirrored by a running civil war in Sonora between centralist Manuel Maria Gandara and the semi-revolutionary federalist José Cosme de Urrea. Then, of course, everyone, from the grandest military caudillo in Mexico City to the lowest-paid soldier in Tucson, was worried about the Norte Americanos and what they would do next. The flash flood that was carrying everything away with it was in full force all right, with nothing seemingly able to check its rampage. And where, exactly, were the floodwaters carrying everything? Well... That's where today's episode comes in. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 20, Casas Belli. I'm going to start today with making a couple apologies up front here. First off, I apologize for this episode being shorter than usual. I try to aim for the 30-minute mark with most scripts, though I will be the first to admit that I fail as often as I succeed on that one. But for reasons both narrative and selfish, this one is not going to quite get there. Let's start with the narrative first. As you might have sussed out, we are on the eve of the Mexican-American War which, you know, will eventually lead to Arizona being detached from Mexico and handed over to the United States. I had planned to bring us right up to the declaration of war in last week's episode, but as I was writing, I found that the episode was getting toward, and then eventually past, that 30-minute threshold. There were still some narrative threads that I had yet to wrap up, and even one or two that I hadn't gotten to at all yet. Not to mention that I still needed to talk about the specific circumstances that led to the two-year war between the U.S. and Mexico. So, in the words of Ned Flanders, I was in a dilly of a pickle. And that leads us to the second, more selfish reason. Just to rip the band-aid off, there will be no episode next week. Now, I know that I abandoned you for a week just a month and a half ago, but I promise I have a reason. You can decide if it's a good one or not. You see, next week is the 4th of July weekend here in the United States. For years now, it's been a tradition for a group of friends and I to get together for the long weekend, gorging on delicious food and geeking out together. This year, it's my turn to be in charge of the festivities, which has been using up a lot of my free time and brain power. Consequently, putting out an episode on July 5th was just not going to work. So, when these two forces combined, I had to make an executive decision. So what I want to do today is take all those dangling narrative threads and bring everything, the U.S., Mexico, Sonora, and Arizona, right up to the declaration of war. That way, when I come back on July 12th, we can dive right into the war years with a full-length episode. All right, 
Again, apologies for a shorter episode and apologies for skipping next week. Now, back to the show. The main thread I overlooked last week, as everyone was bobbing and weaving from the combined Apache and Papago attacks, were the missions. In February 1843, so just before the end of the Papago War and while Tucson commander José Antonio Comodaran was fighting Apaches, the secretary of the Sonoran Department requested a report on the condition of the missions. The responses from Tubac and Tucson did not paint a rosy picture. Historian James Officer says these reports reveal so much deterioration that, quote, it seems indeed remarkable that the Mission Indians chose to resist the urgings of their wilder brethren and remain on the sidelines, end quote. At Tumacockery, the church, which was completed in 1824, was in good condition, but a nearby convent, finished in 1821, was near collapse. The mission fields were overgrown with that bane of Arizona lawn owners everywhere, mesquite trees. A few natives still came to cultivate one of the more distant fields. Calabasas, Guevavi, and Sonoida were all abandoned and in the same shape, with only wild cattle grazing the hillside. At San Javier del Bac, the magnificent church, now pushing 50, was starting to show its age from exposure to the elements. A nearby convent was also starting to cave in, while the walls around the priest's garden and the orchards had fallen to the ruin of both. At El Pueblito, near Tucson, the church there was in a similarly bad state of disrepair, while only six natives still worked the fields. The reports are also extremely critical of the recently deceased Father Rafael Diaz, who had once overseen San Javier del Bac and had been the chaplain at Tucson. They claimed the priest had neglected the church at San Javier and had carried away and sold some of its furnishings. He is also said to have sold or appropriated the mission's livestock, leaving no oxen or horses for the natives to use. At El Pueblito, complaints against Diaz said he had carried off the clerical robes, sacramental vessels, tabernacle, and baptismal font to his new posting at Imures in Sonora. He was also accused of taking money from El Pueblito to invest in a winery for his own gain. It's during this same month, February 1843, that Father Antonio Gonzalez, one of the last Franciscans left, made a trip to Tubac and to Macaquery. Escorted by soldiers from Tucson, Gonzalez would ride the circuit to provide sacraments for the natives and others in the area. This would be his last trip to Arizona, as he died shortly thereafter. It would be more than a year and a half before Arizona would see a priest again. In 1844, Trinidad Garcias Rojas, the parish priest at San Ignacio in Sonora, rode north to attend to sacraments. For two weeks in late August and early to mid-September, Garcia Rojas visited Tumacacari, Tubac, San Javier del Bac, and Tucson, baptizing children. But then he was gone and wouldn't be back for an entire year. When he returned in 1845, there would be fewer families at the far-flung places, with his baptismal record showing that people were clustering around the Presidio at Tucson. One more bit of mission infamy. The natives who still lived or came to Tumacacri had no idea that their land had been declared abandoned by officials in Sonora and sold at public auction in early 1844. 
It turns out that the Odom had lent their title in 1841 to someone in order for him to survey the northern boundary of a grant he wanted in the area of Ambos Nogales. Though the claim was filed in 1841 and approved in 1843, the Odom would never see their title again. And the buyer of their property? A man named Francisco Alejandro Aguilar. Aguilar, it turns out, was none other than the brother-in-law of the sometimes governor of Sonora, Manuel Maria Gandra. Gandra would later run a sheep ranch out of Tumacacri after effectively stealing it out from under the natives. Speaking of Gandra, I suppose we should cover the continuing merry-go-round of his feud with Jose Cosme de Urrea. So last week I mentioned how everyone in Mexico City decided in 1844 that since they couldn't get within a hundred miles of each other without fighting, neither Gandra nor Urrea should be in charge of Sonora. And that's all well and good. Except remember that Mexico City is a very volatile place these days. In January 1845, Captain Comodoran of Tucson called a meeting with all the leading citizens to discuss news coming from the south. Though Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana had ridden a popular wave to oust the hated President Bustamante, that wave had quickly crashed on the beach of reality. Santa Ana had grown to be incredibly unpopular. The nation was still scrapped for cash, and President Santa Ana had resorted to every scheme he could dream up to drum up more. He raised taxes, enacted forced loans on both well-off citizens and the Catholic Church, slashed the salaries of public officials, raised import duties, closed foreign-owned shops, and prohibited such miscellaneous items as dog collars and cigar boxes from being imported from abroad. Yet, at the same time that the nation was rummaging under couch cushions for spare change, Santa Ana's personal holdings and estates kept mysteriously getting bigger and more elaborate. That doesn't even touch on his continuing autocratic tendencies to crack down on the press and dissenters. The 50-year-old general also lost a lot of points when his well-liked and respected wife of 19 years died, and he, in a shocking display of poor taste, announced five weeks later that he was marrying a 15-year-old girl. Despite Santa Ana's call to rally the nation around the continuing headache that is the Texas question, which we'll get to in a moment, Everyone decided enough was enough. In November 1844, General Mariano Paredes y Arriaga, who had twice served as military commander for Sonora and Sinaloa, rose up and called for Santa Ana to be ejected from the presidency. On December 5th, José Joaquín Herrera, the president of the Council of Government, also rose up in revolt. The next day, he sent a list of demands to the vice-presidential toady Santa Ana had placed in charge while he went off to deal with Paredes y Arriaga. Said vice-presidential toady saw that there was no winning this one and caved to Herrera's demands. The so-called three-hour revolution was over. Santa Ana was once again out. But don't worry, kids. He'll be back. Up in Tucson, Comodaran was tasked with finding out where everyone stood on the matter. The meeting ended with everyone agreeing to support Paredes y Arriaga, denounced Santa Ana, and called back José Cosme de Urrea to be governor and military commander of Sonora again. Urrea took up his post with gusto and started formulating aggressive plans to attack the Apaches. 
Using a coordinated effort between presidial forces and local militias working out of nine temporary camps, the plan called for the best, most experienced Apache fighters to patrol a line across northern Sonora. Who knows if this bold vision would have paid off, because in early 1845, Herrera, now installed as President of Mexico, decided not to recognize the elevation of Urrea back to governor. It's possible that Herrera didn't want to reopen the Urrea-Gandra feud and so would not provoke the Gandaristas by keeping Urrea in power. A military force was sent north to Sonora to unseat Urrea, who was expected to make the move of becoming a senator from Durango. Urrea, despite the fears of many at the time, willingly surrendered his seat. But he also asked to remain in Sonora because he claimed to have a military force ready to campaign against the Apaches, and he wanted to lead it. Of course, shortly after the military force that unseated him left Sonora, Urrea was found plotting against the new governor. Herrera was forced to send the military north again to put down any thoughts of such a rebellion. And this, right here, is the end of Urrea. He would never again vie for the governorship of Sonora. Partly it's because he will soon be called to fight in the upcoming Mexican-American War. But the real reason is just four short years later, in 1849, he would fall victim to a cholera epidemic that swept through Mexico. Tucson's native son spent a lifetime chasing after power. He thought he had caught it several times, but it always proved just out of his grasp. To commemorate his passing, and just for fun I suppose, that's Urea's photograph I used as the artwork for today's episode on the podcast website, azhistorypodcast.com. Check it out and see what the stern-looking Chaldea looked like in person. However, Urea's unceremonious removal from anything resembling political power didn't usher in a new era of harmony and the rule of law like Herrera hoped. Instead, it emboldened the Gandaristas to go into revolt in August 1845. One of the aims of this revolt was to actually send Urrea into exile from Mexico. You might recall from episode 15 that this was the fate of Urrea's father, Mariano de Urrea, who was even now still living in Ecuador. This last bit would never happen, and the coming war would also overshadow this latest hop on the Gandra merry-go-round. But never fear, we are still not at the end of this drama. While Urea's plan for fighting the Apaches was stalling, Colonel Jose Maria Elias Gonzalez, who you may have noticed has been with us for quite a while now, was formulating his own plans to fight back. His plan called for such absurd notions as beefing the Presidios up to full strength and making sure they were well-armed and well-supplied. I know, totally nuts, right? Elias Gonzalez said that Tubac only had 28 soldiers currently, but it should have 81. Tucson's 78-man company should be expanded to 94. He also requested that arms be sent, well, everywhere, as currently only the Presidio at Fronteras had enough ammunition to defend against a major attack. The Presidio at Tucson was in possession of a four-pound gun, and that was the best piece of artillery across the Pimaria Alta. 
Finally, Elias Gonzalez wanted to follow the earlier Spanish example and take the fight to the Apaches. He even called for a campaign of 600 infantry and 300 cavalry across three different fronts as an opening salvo. A detailed cost projection for this campaign was even prepared to show its feasibility. Unfortunately, Elias Gonzalez would get no further in his plans than Urrea got in his, mainly due to the turmoil that came from Urrea's planned revolt and the Ganderistas' actual revolt. In September 1845, Elias Gonzalez even sent out a petition to ask the central government to send an army to put down the Ganderistas because it was distracting from the Apache campaign. When the waiting for a response from Mexico City stretched into months, Elias Gonzalez ordered a modest force to take the field anyway. Captain Comadron out of Tucson led a force of 155 men out of the Presidio on November 29th. His forces were a mash of soldiers and civilians from Tucson, soldiers from Tubac, Apaches Mansos, and Odom from San Javier del Bac. They marched northward to the Gila River, then to its intersection with the San Pedro, and finally to the area of Aravapai Creek. The company marched back into Tucson on December 7th. Though they saw evidence of Apache everywhere on their march, they could only report a few skirmishes with disappointing results. Comodoran reported to Elias Gonzalez that they had only killed six warriors and wounded three more. The captain also confessed the deplorable conditions of the garrison. The men were limited to defensive posturing because there were no good horses to be had. They were nearly out of provisions and had no money to purchase more. Comodoran had begged the citizens of Tucson for wheat, but if there was no money to buy it, they would sell to miners elsewhere. The only thing that was keeping the troops fed was the generosity of Tucson citizen Teodoro Ramirez, who managed to find 88 bushels he could donate. Now that the Pimaria Alta has been brought up to the end of 1845, it's time to dive into the greater forces that were slowly pushing Mexico and the U.S. closer to war. Of course, it all really boils down to Texas. As you can probably imagine, the loss of the territory was the sore on Mexico's national pride that refused to heal. The country refused to recognize Texan independence and strenuously opposed the absurd notion that Texas went all the way to the Rio Grande. Rhetoric about taking an army to take back what was rightfully Mexico's will be a rallying cry among the military strongmen for years. Of course, we all know enough about the state of Mexico at this point to say that such a reconquest was a mere fantasy. As one politician lamented shortly before the outbreak of war, quote, Strictly speaking, the army does not exist. What today bears that name is only a mass of men without training and without weapons. End quote. Up in Texas, the situation was complicated. A good deal of Texans had just assumed that once they became independent from Mexico, the U.S. would annex them immediately. But wary of starting hostilities with Mexico and possibly upsetting European powers by making a rash takeover, President Andrew Jackson had punted on the issue. The Texas question, which encompassed themes of democracy, slavery, and manifest destiny, would remain a controversial sticking point for years. 
We also get into some complicated political wrangling here, as England and France would actually push for an independent Texas, just to keep the U.S. in check and to gain access to Texan-raised cotton. They would also try to nudge Mexico to just let Texas go already, though that is a non-starter due in no small part to the country's inability to let Texans claim everything between the Nueces River and the Rio Grande. This was even further complicated by the radical liberals in Mexico, now led by Santa Ana's old displaced vice president, Valentin Gomez Farias, who was advocating a full-on invasion of Texas. At one point in 1843, Texas even almost started a conflict with the U.S. when the government of Sam Houston decided to claim out of the blue that his republic extended all the way to the Arkansas River in Kansas. That territory covered a portion of the Santa Fe Trail, so a force was sent north to make sure that the traders and caravans heading west and east paid tariffs to their new self-proclaimed overlords. Once this group got there, however, they were detained and disarmed by U.S. soldiers sent to stop these sort of shenanigans. The situation was tense, but eventually everyone backed down. So there are a lot of motives and machinations being thrown into the pot and stirred together here. Things were not looking good for anything resembling a diplomatic solution to the Texas question. Especially after the inauguration of President James K. Polk in 1845, who was able to immediately oversee a congressional joint resolution to offer statehood to Texas. At this, the Mexican ambassador in Washington, D.C. cut all diplomatic ties with the U.S. and returned home. Mexican President Herrera did try to avoid war, going so far as to offer to recognize an independent Texas on May 19, 1845, under the condition that they would agree not to join the U.S., He also dangled the not unenticing carrot of possibly negotiating the whole boundary question should Texas accept the offer. On July 4th, 1845, for symbolic reasons I suppose, leaders in Texas decided to accept the American offer of statehood and reject the Mexican offer of recognition. This set off a chorus of saber-rattling, as Herrera had to back up his country's very public remarks that the annexation of Texas would be a pretext for war. However, there was one last glimmer of diplomatic hope. Feeling that the call for war was all bark and no bite, the U.S. dispatched Louisiana politician John Slidell to Mexico City in December 1845. Slidell, who spoke fluent Spanish, was instructed to treat with the Mexicans for as much territory as they were willing to part with. He was authorized to offer $5 million for both New Mexico, which included Arizona, and Texas, though the border at the Rio Grande was non-negotiable. Slidell was further instructed to offer up to $25 million if Mexico was willing to part with California too. The U.S. was also willing to forgive $3 million in claims against the country by American citizens. Unfortunately, sentiment against the Americans and their land grabs was so bitter that Herrera couldn't possibly accept the offer. The moderate president wouldn't even finish the year in office. A coup would oust him before December was out. The new government was not interested in meeting with Slidell, 
who continued to insist they really should get together and talk, please. His instructions from Washington now also said to promise that there would be repercussions should the Mexicans continue to hold out against the ever-so-generous offer. At the same time, President Polk had grown impatient and ordered troops under the command of Old Rough and Ready, current general and future president Zachary Taylor, to leave Corpus Christi and head toward the Rio Grande. In a similar move, naval squadrons were moving within striking distance of Veracruz and Mazatlan. An emboldened Slidell sent an ultimatum to Mexican officials on March 1, 1846, saying they should accept the U.S.'s offer or prepare for war. The U.S. was counting on Mexico to blink first, but when they didn't, Slidell left the country. Up in Texas, Taylor and his forces made it to the Rio Grande in what most today see as a deliberate ploy to provoke a conflict. Mexican forces in the area told him to turn around and return to the Nueces River at once. When he refused, the inevitable happened and Mexican forces engaged a small American reconnaissance group on April 25, 1846. Sixteen Americans were killed or wounded, with the rest captured. President Polk received news of this conflict on May 8th, probably with great Machiavellian delight, and five days later, on May 13th, Congress declared war on Mexico. So, here we are. At long last, after foreshadowing it for however many episodes now, we have arrived at the Mexican-American War, a turning point in the history of Arizona. But, like the mid-season finale of your favorite TV show leaving you on a cliffhanger, we are going to end the episode here, with all the pieces now on the board. I hope those of you in the United States have a wonderful and safe 4th of July, and that all of you will join me in two weeks as we dive into the war years and find out why a bunch of bulls were actually the fiercest enemies American recruits would face in Arizona. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.